Here we go. Roll Here video. I think anybody creating something new must have an adventure. It's not cinema, it's something else. My advice to a young filmmakers is to make a movie every week. The whole bag of movies can be learned in about a day and a half. But suspense is essentially an emotional process. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta make films, you gotta make it and get a scene. Cinema for me is a world of when I dream. Welcome to Behind the Slate. I am your host, Aaron Strand. What you're about to hear is a live audio recording from January 14th, which was a part of our Behind the Slate Presents series at the beautiful Plaza Theater in Atlanta, Georgia. In this series, we host screenings of historic films, talk a little about the relevant historic context, and then open up an audience discussion about how that historic context impacted the art. And tonight, we are discussing Krzysztof Kieslowski's Three Colors White from 1994. Really quickly before we get into the show, I want to thank you for your patience as this podcast has gone on a unexpected mini hiatus. I am hard at work on the next history series, and I assure you that as soon as it is ready, it will be released, and I can't wait to do so. But hey, if you like the work that we're doing, please take this moment like, subscribe, rate, and review. It is so important for you to engage with us to keep this podcast growing. Give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Write a few kind words. It costs you 15 seconds, but it gives us a tremendous boost of support. Remember, this is a completely independent podcast, and we can only continue to grow thanks to you, our audience, and I am incredibly grateful. In the meantime, It is a great pleasure to do events like the one we did for tonight's recording. If you are in the greater Atlanta area and you would like to find out when we are doing our next live show, you can follow us on Instagram at Behind the Slate Pod. And for tickets, you can go to plazaatlanta.com and search for us under upcoming events. Thank you so much for listening and enjoy the show. Hello, 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 everybody. Hello, hello. Thank you all so much for being here. Welcome to Behind the Slate Presents. Uh, My name is Aaron Strand. And for those of you who don't know, Behind the Slate is a film history podcast where I take a historical deep dive into the life and work of cinema's greatest directors. Uh, You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. You can check out our multi-part series on Charlie Chaplin and Melvin Van Peebles and uh, a whole bunch of interviews with filmmakers, scholars, journalists, just kind of a bunch of film stuff. So I'm super happy that we have this continuing series here at the Plaza uh, where I get to bring these films uh, on their, close to their historical release date. This film was released 30 years ago this week. Um, and uh, this is how this is gonna work. I'm gonna give you a little spiel here at the top. We're gonna talk a little bit about the context that will hopefully make the watching of this film that much richer. And then if you can stick around after the show, I'm gonna try to open up the discussion. We're gonna pass the mic around and we're gonna have a, a little conversation about the movie that we just watched. Uh, of course, if you have to take off, please don't hesitate to leave the theater. You will not be shamed. Um, now, this movie that we're about to watch tonight, Christoph Kieslowski's White. Uh, there's a, I wanna start here. There's a few words. These are the words that have been used to describe this movie. Okay, <clears throat> enigmatic, 
intoxicating, sublime, gritty, yet playful. Trance-like, transcendent, transcendental, and ticklish. I, uh, I don't know where they got that last one, but uh, you do you, Criterion Blu-ray. Uh, <laughs> I think all these words speak to the fact that this film is really hard to talk about, okay? Uh, you know, in fact, as I was prepping this monologue for tonight's show, I kind of had a moment of panic because I was like, what the hell do I say about a movie that is so steeped in subtext? And what do I say about a filmmaker whose great skill is kind of walking the line between hyper-realism and a sort of dreamlike, symbolic world? I mean, what, what am I supposed to say about this? And really, the place that I had to start was, I had to start with my own kind of biases as a film watcher, which is that, like, full confession, I hate talking about symbolism in movies, okay? I find it pretentious. I, I, I just do, I find on the whole, most of like, you know, watching films and like, this color means this and this balloon means that. Like, I find it kind of like conspiracy thinking, you know? And like, and, and so in my opinion, it's kind of a waste of time. But um, Kieslowski is one of those few filmmakers where he does it and he does it really, really well. And so before we talk about sort of what the film means and try to try to break down some of this symbolic shit we're about to watch, I think the real question that we have to ask before we watch the movie is how did he develop this skill, right? How did he learn this skill set? Because he didn't come out of the womb like this. So I'm going to tell you a little story about Christoph Kieslowski's life. And I think that it really unlocks the secret of these movies. So, Kieslowski was born, <laughs> if you were to give me a list, I, if I could choose where I was born and what year I would be born in, 1941 Warsaw would probably be at the bottom of my list. That's where Kieslowski's born, Nazi-occupied Poland. In his early childhood, in the first four years of his life, he experiences occupation, the Soviets invade, the Germans retreat, the horrors of the Holocaust are revealed, and all of a sudden, his country has become a communist dictatorship. Now, of course, he wasn't thinking about this. He was a little kid. He was instead thinking about a problem that was dictating his family's life. His father had severe tuberculosis, and he was traveling all across Poland, searching for a cure, spending time in hospitals. By the time he was 14 years old, Kieslowski estimates that he probably lived in about 40 different towns. Now, this not only taught him how to observe the world, but it, it gave him a deep love for his mother country. Now, as he grows older, his father eventually dies from tuberculosis. As Kieslowski's approaching his 20s, he has no idea what he wants to do. He, he has no inclination toward filmmaking whatsoever. He tries to be a fireman. He goes to trade school. Finally, he hears that he has a distant uncle who runs a theater program. Poland has a fantastic theatrical heritage. And he says, okay, that's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna go be a theater director. But this is like a master's program and he needs a bachelor's degree to get into the theater school. So he applies to the Polish film school as just a stepping stone to get to theater school. And he's denied. And this pisses him off, so he applies again and he's denied again. And uh, now he has a real problem because if he doesn't get into school, he's gonna be drafted into the Polish army. So what he does is he goes on an extreme diet and starves himself to the point where he becomes unfit for military service. 
And this buys him enough time to apply for a third time. And finally, he gets into the Polish film school at Lodz. Now, this is a really important place in cinematic history. This had been the training ground of Andrzej Wajda, who made Ashes and Diamonds, and Roman Polanski, who just a few years before Kieslowski goes, had been nominated for an Academy Award for his first film, Knife in the Water. But most importantly, this film school was this liberal progressive bastion. It is probably the most anti-communist state-run institution in the entire Eastern Bloc. And Kieslowski goes and his mind is just blown as he's exposed to not only foreign films that can't be seen elsewhere in Poland, but all of this freedom of thought. And we're so lucky that he got there at this specific window of time, because in 1968, the last year of his studies, Poland erupts into protest. These students are protesting the communist government's suppression of intellectual thought. And uh, protests spread across the country. The government responds by cracking down hard. Uh, thousands of students are imprisoned. Uh, intellectuals are expelled out of the country. It gets really ugly. They turn it, uh, the government uh, scapegoats the small Jewish population left in Poland uh, after the Holocaust. And it becomes essentially uh, an anti-Semitic purge. And in this process, about two thirds of the film school's faculty is kicked out of the country. Now, Kieslowski took this event and he did something very interesting. He realized that he would never be able to make an overtly political film in Poland. So instead he turns to making documentaries. He becomes an avowed documentarian. He even writes a manifesto swearing that he will never not make documentaries, which is kind of funny considering his later work. And his documentaries are really smart. He goes about shooting the traditional Polish life that he fell in love with as a kid, but he does it in a really smart way. He made a documentary called Hospital. And in this, in this film, he just shows doctors going about their business, they're overworked, they're underprivileged, and they don't have enough supplies. He made a film called Train Station about a bunch of people waiting for a train and they wait and wait and the train is delayed and the train is delayed and more and more people come. Finally, the train comes, the train is full and all these people rush the train knowing that there's only a few spots left. And what he's doing is he's showing acceptable images for the censors, but in doing so, he's showing all that is missing in Polish life. He's essentially painting with negative space. And other people pick up on what he's doing. He becomes kind of the centerpiece of this burgeoning Polish underground cinema where all these artists are figuring out how to bury their political critiques deep into the subtext of their film. And what's even cooler is that the audience knows that they're doing this and they become kind of co-conspirators in this, watching their movies with an intense fascination, looking for clues of truth because what the state is telling them is not real. Well, Kieslowski keeps doing this. Eventually, he switches from documentaries to narrative features. From 1976 to 1981, he makes six feature films. Three of them are banned. Three of them get shelved by the censors. And he is at a moment of crisis. He's incredibly frustrated that his work is being banned. Uh, his mother tragically dies in a car accident. And then once again, his fate becomes intertwined with his country. 1980, uh, a group of trade unionists and church members have kind of come together and they formed a solidarity movement that is pushing back against the communist 
power structure, okay? And the communists respond by again cracking down hard. Martial law is declared. Once again, thousands of people are arrested. They're sent to internment camps. People are being killed. People are being dragged out of their homes. Filmmakers are having all of their funding cut and they're being dragged into Politburo offices and being forced to sign loyalty pledges. Kieslowski thought he might never make a film again. He has to work as a taxi driver. And as tanks are rolling down the streets of Warsaw, he goes to a shabby cafe. He meets up with a young, and passionate, uh, essentially human rights defense attorney, this guy who's defending a bunch of these imprisoned solidarity members. And this guy's name is Christoph Pisevich, uh, sorry, Pisevich. And um, they have a 15 minute meeting. That meeting led to one of the most prolific collaborations in the history of cinema. These two men would go on to co-write, co-direct, and edit 17 films together over the next 15 years. This, is, of course, includes the revolutionary TV series Decalogue, which some of you may have seen. Uh, Decalogue comes out in 1989 and is a huge hit, and it opens Kieslowski up to all this foreign investment. And thank God it did, because in 1989, the Berlin Wall falls and communism begins to crumble, which for Kieslowski means his funding begins to crumble. So Kieslowski, Pisevich, Kieslowski's wife and daughter, he's also a devoted family man, they go to France. Um, they go to France, and now this guy who had developed this very specific skill set for this very specific culture and this very specific government is unleashed to a broader Europe that is not struggling with censorship, it's struggling with self-identity. It's struggling with how do we bridge these gaps, these deep scars that have been hewn uh, into Europe, not only through the last 50 years of communism, but through the last 2,000 years of bloodshed. They make a sort of strange movie called The Double Life of Veronique, uh, which is about a, a woman who has a, a Polish woman who has a strange doppelganger in France. Clearly, he's sort of uh, dealing with his own split identity. And then Pisiewicz turns to Kieslowski and he says something really interesting. I want to get the quote right here. He says, we need to pay attention to what politicians are saying. They are talking about liberty, equality, and fraternity. But many leaders have invoked these things, and what followed was great misfortune. And with that, they set out on making the Three Colors trilogy, blue, white, and red, which of course are based on the three colors of the French flag, which are representative of the three ideals of the French Revolution, liberty, equality, and fraternity. So. Now that we know a little bit more about the man and where he was in his life when he made this movie, I'm going to shut up, but I would encourage all of us to not watch this film with the jaded eyes of a 2024 cinephile who spends more time scrolling letterbox and filmstagram than watching actual movies. Let's watch this with the attention of a Polish co-conspirator and see what sort of images jump out. That I'll shut up. Thank you so much, and enjoy the show. At this point, we watch Christoph Kieslowski's Three Colors White. If you wish to watch along with our episode, you can stream this film on Criterion Channel and Max. You can also rent it through Amazon Prime. We jump ahead now to just after the film has ended, and I ask the audience for their initial thoughts and reactions to the film. <laughs> 
Uh, tell, me, so, tell me your name, and uh, is this the first time you've seen the film? So my name is Kara, and um, as soon as I saw the actor's face in the trench coat, I was like, I've seen this movie before. So it's so funny that it, I completely forgot that I'd seen it. Like, I thought I'd seen other films in the trilogy, so that's funny. And um, uh, uh, thoughts that I have, I'm really eager to hear what you have to say about it. Uh, very odd, um, parable, story, love story, very interesting, dark, weird story. So I'm kind of curious. Would you say ticklish? <laughs> no, I would not say ticklish. So no, no for a ticklish. <laughs> I would uh, tend to agree. I would tend to agree. Anybody else? Uh, oh, we got a we got a hand here. Uh, what's your name, and have you seen the film before? I've never seen the film before. My name is Sean, and uh, really appreciate you putting this together. The monologue was great. Really hyped me up for the film. Uh, I think probably the part that stood out the most to me was just the humor in him uh, leaving this country that you know turned its back on him to go home, uh, only to have his own country turn his back on him as well. Uh, you know, getting mugged and uh, you know, still somehow managing to look at the dystopian countryside and be like, ah, sweet home, you know? Uh, so yeah, that stood out for me, yeah. Awesome, thank you so much. Yeah, the, the, the dichotomy between the two locations definitely like plays a big, a big part in the setting of this movie. I saw someone's hand over here. Yeah, hey, uh, what's your name and have you seen the movie before? Uh, I'm Chenzi. Uh, I've, this is the second time I've seen this movie. I've seen uh, Blue is one of my favorites. I've seen it like five or six times. Uh, but what I love about this film is the revenge he gets is uh, parallels his own life and how he's been tortured for years and years. Now she's in prison and infatuated with him and can't really have him, even though he's there at a distance. And it's a twisted, twisted game, but he is generating the feelings that he felt uh, to her. And I always love that about this movie. It's... <laughs> Totally. I, I mean, it's a totally, I mean, it's a crazy, it's a crazy plot. And, and, and there's, a, there's all these different layers to it. I mean, there's layers of gender, like within that there's la and there's sort of bigger symbolism that we'll hopefully talk to now white, you know, in the, in the flag, right. Is talking about equality, right? That's what the overall sort of ideal that this film is supposed to be about. Did anybody have any sort of instances of equality or the lack thereof that jumped out to them? Uh, anybody notice anything? I'll go ahead and tell you my personal favorite, uh, which I just find hilarious, is when the baggage handlers have stolen him and they're loading him out into the dump. And the guy says, "Let's we're going to split this five ways equal. I get two, you guys get three. <laughs> uh, that, I always think that's hilarious. Did anybody else notice sort of any images of equality or lack thereof uh, that they wanted to jump out on? Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the parts that kind of became humorous for me was, um, I should just blanked out damn yeah um hold on it's coming back to me yeah towards the end oh uh when he you know kind of fakes it that he's falling asleep you know to kind of hear this master plan of these people that are corrupt in the country they're basically you know robbing you know trying to like make money off the the property purchases that the government's trying to make uh and so he goes up to them buys up the land you know sells it back to him and the guy that is basically now getting screwed over just kind of has this aha moment of like, you know what, it's fair. Like you screwed me over. I'm in the same game, you know, here's your tenfold kind of gains on it. So yeah, 
just the just the acceptance that he had versus trying to fight him on it. Yeah, I love that. That whole dynamic is pretty interesting, especially also how like when he first like reveals his plan, they're like, God, what a low life. <laughs> it's like they were literally doing the exact same thing. You know, I think that it speaks. Um, Krzysztof uh, uh, Pisevich, the, uh, the co-writer here, he has a quote uh, on this film. Quote, do we want to be equal? Everyone thinks there should be equality, but just a little more for them. But if someone has more than us, that's a problem. All consumerism and advertising is based on us not being equal. Let's stop pretending that we want equality. Equal opportunity, yes, but what does that mean? I mean, clearly, these two guys have a pretty sardonic view of equality. You know, and, and I think this goes from the, the fact that they're coming from a former communist country, you know, communism operating under the sort of auspices that everyone is equal, but is every, instead it just forces everyone into the same sort of miserable equality. And now they're trying to reintegrate into Europe that has its own preconceived notions of equality based on this equal opportunity, but is that really equal? I, I don't know, I don't know. Um, you know, another couple, a few things, uh, that just jump out to me, of course, the divorce proceedings. Uh, Carol feels discriminated against because he can't speak French um, and feels that those uh, that situation is not equal for him. Um, I love the little moment between uh, Carol and his brother arguing about how many uh, 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 haircuts he has to give in order to earn his keep. <laughs> ten, ten heads, five, okay, seven. <laughs> um, Okay, uh, so then what about, what about some of the elements of surreality or heightened reality? Um, these sort of moments where uh, the film leaves its realist groundings and, and drifts into the world of the fantastical. I mean, without necessarily saying what it means, did any of these moments jump out to anybody? Anybody wanna mention anything? Or anything that they thought was particularly beautiful or touching? What's that? The wedding, the wedding. Yes. What? Let me. I'm coming with the microphone. I, you can't. You can't stop me. You can't stop me. Uh, what was it about the wedding that you liked so much? It was just so so surreal. Just very beautiful, and the the color theme was really direct. <laughs> Did you notice how uh, you know we see the same basic shot three times, but three times it's a little bit different. What did you What did you think about that? Well, at the end, it was it was definitely more. Um, it was less fantastical than the first two iterations of that scene. I'm also curious to hear your thoughts on the pigeons. <laughs> the pigeons, yes, yes, the the ever present flapping of pigeon wings throughout the entire film. Uh, I, I mean, I. I just to answer that, uh, uh, I don't really have any like profound answer for the pigeon flapping, other than that, like every time I think he's thinking of Dominique, you know, the pigeons are are flapping overhead. You know, he, when he sees the bust in the window, he hears the flapping. Um, when he's uh, uh, buying the the Russian import, uh, you know, there's a, a pigeon flapping in the in the wind. But then there's other times when pigeons arrive that. You know, it doesn't seem to be him thinking of Dominique. You know, a pigeon arrives between him and Mikolai down in the subway station. So, I mean, look, I don't have any, like, answers as to, like, what, you know, everything in the movie is about. But it is really, it is really interesting how he consciously layers it in. Uh, yeah, I see somebody back here talking about surrealist elements within the film. Um, my name is Evan. Uh, it's sort of like this whole thing he's being driven by, like, with this, like, 
uh, with his ex-wife, it's sort of like inherently almost like a fantasy. And like, I just, something that stuck with me was like when he's like playing with the coin or whatever, and you see him like look up and it just like cuts to her, like in her apartment or something. And it's just like, it just emphasizes or like reminds like this is what he's being driven by, which is just like kind of crazy. Yeah, yeah, great catch. It's actually crazy. That little insert shot, that's actually a flash forward of her coming back into the hotel at the end of the night. Uh, uh, of course, we don't know that at the time, so we we have no idea where she is. Um, uh, the coin also plays another great point when he's like trying to throw the coin into the river and it just sticks to his hand. And I was like, <laughs> what's up with that? Um, that's crazy. Uh, um. I'm not sure if this would be called surreal or not, but I was just thinking of his relationship with the the statue, the bust, yeah. and then how it breaks and how he glues it back together and what rocks and that affects him in some way. And then his kiss and, you know, it reminded me, is it, is it Greek or Roman? What is the story of the artist and the, the model that comes alive or something? I thought it's in my tongue too, but I can't. Yeah, but that's what it reminded me of. Yeah. Yes, the, the Greek myth where he like creates a woman and, and falls in love with the like marble bust. Uh, yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about, but I, of course, it's escaping me. Uh, I, but uh, uh, I think that that actually ties into sort of like a big, you know, question that we have to ask when we're talking about this movie. What about Dominique, right? I mean, we've got this major, you know, the major female character, and she's like, Absolutely horrible. I mean, she's she just treats him abysmally. I mean, from from a feminist perspective, I mean, this is like pretty pretty rough. So, does anyone have any thoughts about about her uh, about her portrayal in the film? Does anyone any, anything bubbling in anybody's head? Uh, yeah, back here. Uh, what makes sense to me is he's in the import export business, and she becomes his ultimate French import. And just like the Russian body that he imports, he buries her you know, for his own purpose. She's turned into a commodity, basically. Interesting. Interesting. So you have a pretty negative opinion of old Carol Carol by the end of this film. You know, it's funny. This is the second time I saw this film. The first time I only remember up to the real estate scam. And after that, I blanked it out. Watching it this second time, I'm like, what WTF is going on with the end there? But that's kind of how it makes sense to me that his obsession with her has basically converted her into this commodity, which he's going to import, control, and you know, uh, use to his own ends. Nice, nice. I like that. I like that a lot. Very, very cool. Yeah, I think I, I, I personally think you got something. All right. I'm not sure that the movie really treats her bad things happen to her the character but her actions all seem he's a sad sack of shit right <laughs> so her her behavior towards him uh he doesn't distrim uh, he doesn't uh question the facts in the court case uh it is revealed that he is of a low moral character uh so her behavior towards him seems frankly in, in keeping with the norm with what a person could be you know it's not like it's not like she has to behave virtuous as she divorces him and then he continues to stay in stay in her life break into her break into her salon like do all of these things you know it seems like he wasn't holding his end in the bargain in the beginning uh and then you know 
Uh, what happens, happens. <laughs> what happens, happens. Yeah, yeah, I, I hear you. I mean, I, I personally, I, oh, we got one more over here. Yeah. About this. So you asked, you know, how do we feel about the movie's treatment of Dominique? And to me, she seems like she's a stand-in for France in so many ways, right? So the beauty of France, the unattainable of France, the sexuality of France, the perfection of France. It's when you said at the beginning that, you know, time-wise, this is, you know, there's a lot about how Poland and the eat and the development of the EU and Poland being like the lesser um the lesser relative in that relationship, right? So, you know, Dominique represents the, you know, the, the ideal of a European perfection, right? She's stunningly beautiful. She's unattainable. She's gonna fuck with your head. You know, if, if you can't fuck me, then you're not worth my time, you know, like, like, Bring it, you know, she's so I don't even think like the question of feminism plays in because she seems like such a stand in for the country. Like she's almost not really uh, uh, I don't really even see her as a character, uh, like a, like a character, like he's a character. She's she's representative in my mind. Uh, Brilliant. I love it. I love it. Uh, I, I would absolutely agree with you because and I think that Dominique is sort of the ultimate example of a heightened reality of this whole film. Like she does not behave like a human. And yet we could, you know, make a list of all of her behaviors and all of her traits. And just like you said, distill it down to an entire society and an entire dynamic. And, you know, I also reflected about this sort of, if we are going to kind of think about the sort of gender interplay, you know, there's also this, this stereotype that have, has been placed upon Polish men historically as these, uh, you know, as a sort of hypersexualized uh, sort of brute. I mean, let's not forget that Tennessee Williams made Stanley Kowalski Polish in A Streetcar Named Desire to exploit this very purpose. Here he is, you know, unable to live up to that to that stereotype, and it precipitates this sort of downfall. Uh, of course, in the broader scope of a Europe searching for identity. And I think that that is the key to the whole sort of symbolic reading of the film. Now, Kieslowski, Ishevich, they've never directly commented on this, uh, but I would absolutely agree with you that Dominique is France. She's cunning, she's beautiful, she's cold, she's exploitative, uh, she's, she's all the things. And Carol, I think, is post-communist Poland, you know? He's, He's a bit shabby, he's a bit down on his luck, he's out of place, he's searching for identity. Um, and when he can't perform like up to the expectations, he gets thrown back. And he finds himself in this situation where he has to jump headfirst into sort of unfettered capitalism uh, in an attempt to catch up, in, a, in an attempt to become equal to the rest of Europe. He discovers that he will never become equal. She will never look on him uh, in the way that he wants her to. And so what he does is something really interesting. And I imagine this is maybe what Kieslowski and Pishevich were thinking that the future might look like, which is that instead of just trying to catch up, he eventually decides, I'm going to bring her down to my level. And that's how equality can be, you know, attained, uh, which is pretty dark, uh, to be honest. Um, you know, 
this all speaks to how this film fits within the greater scope of the trilogy, and of course, how these ideals interrelate. And I think Kieslowski and Pishevich were very aware that liberty and equality, these first two ideals of the revolution, have an inverse relationship to each other, right? The more liberty individuals have, the less equality a society has, because people inevitably use their liberty to get a leg up on their neighbor. Uh, they use it to compete and they use it to, to win. Of course, the more equality a society has, very often the less liberty they have because in order to attain this magical equality, uh, we have to limit people's freedoms. And I think that they were acutely aware of this dynamic. And the solution that they come up with, I believe, is presented in this bizarre final scene where Carol goes to visit Dominique in the prison. And it's weird, right? I mean, it's a weird scene. And she's up there, the, the bars kind of melt away, and she seems to mime her desire to marry Carol again. I mean, is this, is she sincere? Is she just using him to get out of prison? Who's to say? But what we can say is that Carol is emotionally affected by this, right? His resentment towards her melts away and he reconnects with the empathy uh, that he has towards her. And I think that that is their setup for the final part of the trilogy, which explores, of course, fraternity. And I think that these two writers are telling us that they believe that this is the hope of the European experiment and of, uh, uh, of society at large, that liberty and equality will always be at some odds with each other. But if the empathy and love felt between people can be attained, even in the most fucked up of circumstances, there is a slight glimmer of hope. The light at the end of the tunnel, as his brother tells him. Uh, or I guess as the lawyer tells his brother uh, right before the end of the film. Uh, anyway, that is all that I have for you guys tonight. Thank you so much for coming out to Behind the Slate Presents. If you want to listen to this podcast, uh, this audio is going to be released on Friday. Um, and we will be doing more of these in the future. Of course, you can uh, follow us wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Instagram at Behind the Slate Pod. Uh, thank you so much for coming. And until next time, that is a wrap. Good night, y'all.